Welcome, brave souls, to Stories to Dismember, where nightmares are unleashed and horror takes center stage. Together, we'll embark on a chilling journey to the darkest realms of cinema, dissecting bone-chilling tales that will haunt your dreams. So buckle up, dear listener, as we embark on a cinematic odyssey filled with screams, suspense, and the kind of horror that lingers long after the credits roll. Welcome to a world where fear has a name and nightmares come to life. This is Stories to Dismember, the podcast that will leave you breathless and begging for mercy. Welcome back to our show. I am your host, Aaron, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Ariel and Azrael. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. Yay. And this week, we're going to dive into the movie Psycho from 1960. It's part of our 60s theme this month in to kick us off and guide us through this movie this week is going to be Azrael. Take All it right. away. <laughs> All right. Yep. Psycho, uh, directed by uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And the movie stars Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Gavin, Martin Balsam, uh, John McIntyre, and Janet Lee. So uh, I, I noticed that Vera Miles was also in other Alfred Hitchcock movies. And he tends to like to use the same actors in other movies. Is that right? Yeah, it's kind of like John Carpenter using the same actors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I, when I saw Vera Miles, obviously I recognized her from this, but I've also recognized her in other films from this time period, but also other Hitchcock films too. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And then, you know, obviously the main character or the main actor for this film is also in some of his other films as well. So I think he just likes certain actors to work with and you know if you know you like somebody you just pick them up for another project yeah kind of like Quentin Tarantino too he does the same thing and it, it works yeah exactly exactly yeah and I for the longest time did not know that Jamie Lee Curtis's mom was the main female lead in this movie <laughs> right so she's absolutely stunning in this movie oh definitely yeah and you could totally see like once you see the resemblance you can't unsee it <laughs> you might have just clued somebody in for the first time watching it Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I was, you know, this, I found out about this maybe five years ago. So <laughs> <laughs> there's always new horror fans. So we always, yeah, have that's true. To tell them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the uh, start of the movie, we're in uh, downtown Phoenix, Arizona, and we have uh, Sam Loomis in a hotel room who's having an affair with Marion. Uh, we find out uh, that, uh, you know, Marion wants Sam to leave his wife. But uh, Sam is very hesitant and says that, you know, he's in debt. And that's the main reason that they can't get married. So Marion works at a real estate, Lowry Real Estate. So she eventually leaves the hotel, goes back to work. She was on her uh, lunch break. And she works at the uh, this office as a secretary. And while she's there at the office, this uh, guy by the name of Mr. Cassidy comes in. To me, he seemed almost like a uh, oil tycoon. Yeah. He's just missing Texas the glasses, I think. Tycoon. Yeah, he had the bolo tie going on. Might have been a little inebriated or drunk when he went in there. I guess he could be Arizona, too. They dress that way, too. Ah. So he seems like he was kind of flirting with Marion, the way he was like sitting on her desk, and he's talking about you know, how much money he has. He eventually gives Marion $40,000 in cash. It's for, uh, for a purchase of a home for his daughter, who just got married. Her Marion's boss isn't comfortable with you know having that type of money on hand. So, you know, he tells her to take the money and deposit it at the bank. So before going, leaving the office, Marion tells her boss that she wasn't feeling well. You know, she was asking if she can go home after making the deposit in case she has a headache. 
I think at that point, Mr. Cassidy had stepped in and approved it before the boss could even answer. Instead of choosing to go to the bank, Marion decides that she's going to keep the money. And, you know, we follow her back to her house and she's packing a bag and decides to drive to her her, uh, her boyfriend's house, Sam, uh, who lives in California. So as uh, Marion's trying to drive away, she's downtown and uh, she's at a stoplight. You got pedestrians walking in front of her car and Marion's boss actually walks past and he even takes like a double like a double look to look back at the car because he's like, well, you know, Marion should be at home because she has a yeah. headache or on the way to the bank. It's kind of like they recognize each other and smiled and they were both like, what the hell? Yeah. I, and I kind of wonder if that was Taren- Quentin Tarantino's, like if he used that because like in Pulp Fiction, when, uh, you know, Vin Rames is walking in front of Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis's car and they look at each other. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if that was like an inspiration. Yeah. He's carrying his donuts. Or yep. <laughs> so, uh, Marin, you know, continues driving on the way to California, and you can see that she's getting really tired from driving, so she decides to pull off and take a, a nap on the side of the road, at which point in the morning, a California Highway Patrolman, you know, wakes her up and starts questioning her. Uh, you know, she tries to take off, but the cops starts questioning her. Uh, she eventually gives the ID. He goes back to the car. Uh, she decides to drive off, and then you have this, I don't know, I call it slow speed pursuit because it didn't seem like they were going that fast. And he didn't look like he had any lights on. The highway patrolman eventually takes an exit and Marion continues on driving. She ends up uh, going to a used car lot to trade in her car. While she's talking to the salesman, uh, she notices eventually that the, uh, the same patrolman's now across the street outside his vehicle watching her. So she's trying to get the sales guy to kind of speed up the process, you know, just drop all the normal salesman stuff. And she just wants to trade in the car and get something different. So uh, Marion gets the guy to agree with her and the salesman and her go into the office while they're inside. You know, the cop pulls onto the car lot. You know, she's in a rush to take off. She almost forgets her uh, luggage. They have to stop her in her bat in her uh, coat. I got to say that she's doing a terrible job at acting normal. She's doing exactly what you don't want to do if you've just committed a crime. If she just played it a little bit cooler, she could have gotten off a lot better and not have this cop tailing her. I thought this this whole cop following her was going to come back around full circle, and I was disappointed that it just stopped there. <laughs> yeah, it never, it never really went anywhere. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, where's that cop that we saw earlier that was like really on her tail? Nope, yeah. doesn't doesn't matter. <laughs> he even asked for all her info and all that stuff, and just, okay, that was it. Yeah, did she take off when he still had her info, or did he give it back to her? Uh, the initial stop? Yeah. No, she he, he had the ID still. Oh my gosh. And so he didn't <laughs> yeah. like think to just follow her and be like, I was just trying to give you your ID back, you know, <laughs> just a misunderstanding. Cause she's so paranoid. His police work was different in the sixties. <laughs> well, I guess so. He was just talking to her and then she just drove off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like, thought that was okay. very strange. Yeah. And then, and then later on, like, wouldn't that come into play if, if, I mean, somebody was involved in something like that. I, I just don't know why this policeman was never involved in the story from here on out with what's going to happen next. Yeah. It was really odd why they, I mean, it seems like it was a, they were trying to make a point about it, but yeah, it never yeah. turned into anything. Yeah. Okay. Cause he did say, yeah, I want to see that paperwork or I might want to look at it. Oh yeah. From the sales guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. California Charlie. So, all right. So then Marion continues on driving to California. She eventually gets caught in a, you know, a rainstorm. She decides to stop at a hotel, which is the Bates Motel. She goes inside and doesn't find anybody working inside. So she steps back outside 
and notices, you know, you can see a silhouette of a, a woman inside the house that's on the property. So she goes back to her car to honk the horn. You know, a guy comes out to go inside the office to help her. And the worker we find is uh, Norman Bates, who tells her, you know, that the hotel is completely vacant. They have 12 rooms and no guests. He says that because, you know, the highway, the way it was relocated, that that's why they haven't had anybody there in a long time. So uh, he has Marion, you know, check in and then convinces her to come over to the house for dinner and because she was hungry from driving so long. So uh, Marion goes to the room, which is room one, uh, right outside the office. And uh, while she's unpacking her stuff, she can overhear Norman arguing with his mother about her coming over to eat. The mother, you know, she refuses for Marion to come over. She demands that Norman goes back to the motel to tell her that she can't come over. Uh, Norman comes back to the hotel or motel and he's got the food on a tray and convinces her to eat inside the office. So, you know, Marion and Norman are in the uh, back office part while she's eating. And, uh, you know, Norman starts to talk about his weird hobby of uh, birds only taxidermy. And then, uh, you know, Norman's talking about his mother and that she's ill from having to raise him on her own since he was uh, five after his father died. Uh, Norman tells her about, you know, his father had left uh, some money and Norman's mother eventually met another man a few years later who convinced her to build the uh, Bates Motel, but then tells her uh, that, you know, the man eventually died. And uh, actually Norman kind of laughs at this point when he's telling Marion that, you know, because she's eating, he wouldn't tell her the way he died. So that was kind of interesting. And then, uh, you know, Marion suggests to Norman about Norman putting his mother into a, a mental institution and uh, Norman's demeanor like completely changes. He kind of describes what it's like being inside a mental institution. And uh, then he kind of eventually snap, snaps back and starts laughing and telling her that, you know, we all go a little mad sometimes. Uh, so Marion decides to go back for her uh, to her room for the night. And uh, before leaving, she mistakenly gives her real last name. And after she leaves, Norman goes and checks the uh, guest registry where he notices that she used the last name Samuels when she gave the name uh, Crane. We notice, well, we find that uh, Norman has a peephole behind a uh, picture in his back office. He's watching the whole Marion get undressed. Uh, this next, we have like a, I think it's like the famous movie scene. So while Marion is showering, you can see like a, a shadowy figure come through and enter the bathroom. Curtains open and, you know, Marion is stabbed repeatedly by a woman who's, you know, we can't see her face. It's kind of like shadowy. And then uh, from the Bates home, we can hear Norman yelling out, you know, oh God, mother, blood. And then Norman races back into the hotel where he finds, uh, you know, Marion's body on the ground in the shower. And then uh, Norman begins to clean up the crime scene. And he did it in a way that seems like it wasn't his first time doing it. There wasn't really any hesitation. Uh, Norman puts Marion's body and all her stuff in the back of the trunk, including the uh, money that was wrapped up in a newspaper, and then drives the car to like a swamp area and then pushes it in and lets the car sink to the bottom. So, uh, you know, Marion's sister, uh, Lila, who was worried, goes to Marion's boyfriend's store, which is a hardware store, and uh, she talks to Sam to find out about Marion if she's there. So as they're talking about the, you know, Marion missing, a private investigator comes in by the name of uh, Abergast, and he starts telling Sam about the money, how it's missing, 40000 and that, you know, he's trying to track her down. He's been following Lila. So, uh, you know, Abergast continues with his investigation, talking to people, which eventually leads him to the Bates Motel. And uh, he starts to question Norman about Marion or if, she, if she's ever been there. 
and uh, he seems to be a little nervous. And uh, Abergast begins to see that uh, something's missing in the story of Marion going there and staying just the one night. And Norman's really nervous as he's talking uh, to the investigator. Abergast leaves and goes to a payphone to call Lila to tell him about you know what he's found out, the information, and that uh, he still wants to talk to the mother because uh, he believes that she may have information that she might have talked to Marion while she was staying there. So he tells uh, Lila that he's going to call her back or he's going to see her in, a, in an hour after he talks to the mother. So Abergast goes back to the Bates Motel, tries to look around. There's nobody in the office and he decides to go up to the house. And while he's in the house, he goes up to the top of the steps. And then we see a woman come out, should be Norman's mother, and she stabs uh, Mr. Abergast. He falls down the stairs and then uh, Norman's mother over the body stabs him again repeatedly multiple times uh so back at the uh hardware store sam and lila are talking and sam decides to go back up and check see if abergast is around he goes up he doesn't find anyone around but then we see norman that's back in that swampy area assuming that he disposed of another body uh then sam goes back to tell lila that he didn't find anybody except an old woman you know uh, bates's mom that she was ill that she didn't come to the door So Sam decides to uh, go to the sheriff, Al Chambers, to have him look into this matter. So at the sheriff's house, you know, they tell him about what's been going on. And, uh, you know, the sheriff believes that the investigator, Abergast, probably got the actual information he needed as to the whereabouts of Marion. And that, you know, he gave Lila false information to throw them off while he follows the lead. You know, they're not buying it. Lila's not buying it that the investigator would have did that. So... The sheriff eventually calls and talks to Norman, and uh, Norman tells the sheriff that the investigator was there, but that uh, you know he had left. And uh, then this is when we find out that uh, Norman's mother had been dead for like 10 years, that it was a murder-suicide, that uh, Norman's mom had poisoned the guy, and that Norman had found them both dead in the bed. Norman, or um, I'm sorry, Sam and uh, Lila eventually decide to go up to uh, the Bates Motel to find out for themselves, you know, what's really going on. So they check in at the hotel. Sam decides to look at, you know, try to look at the registry. Uh, so while they're there, uh, Lila decides to go into the house while Sam is uh, going to look around inside the hotel. I think they found the paper. Well, they, they look into the room first. They check in and they met uh, where the room Marion was staying. And they find that um, there was a piece of paper that Marion had flushed that she had written down how much money she had spent. Oh yeah. That was like the toilet scene. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Mm. They were both in the room and she found a little piece of paper with a sliver. I don't know how she knew like what that meant because (laughs) she was literally just doing arithmetic on a piece of paper. But I got to say that uh, Norman was really good at cleaning up that whole room because, well, I mean, she was bleeding in the showers, but so there wasn't that much blood, but the fact that he was able to get the body out of the room without like, you know, anything going amiss, you know, in that whole process. Like you said, it didn't seem like it was his first time doing it. Right. He's like, not again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not again, mom. <laughs> um, so, yeah, while Sam is uh, talking to Norman, uh, Lila decides to go inside the house to look around. While she's in the house, she eventually makes her way into the basement to, and she finds... What she thinks didn't they is, call that? Didn't they call that a fruit cellar? 
I think maybe they did. Because the mom kept saying, don't put me in the fruit cellar again. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Norman had the conversation. <laughs> yeah. With Norman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He put her downstairs. Fruit cellar. But um, so Isla finds that Norman's mother is dead and it's just the her skeleton with a wig and housecoat. So, you know, she panics. And at this point, Norman runs in dressed as a woman with a knife and before he can stab Lila, Sam manages to uh, save the day and take down Norman. So back at the police station, uh, you have a detective explaining the whole story, kind of giving like a, a psychoanalysis and that um, basically Norman kind of has a, a split personality and the mother lives within his mind and he goes back and forth between the, the personalities, which was kind of interesting. Cause I think the two detectives, when, they were talking about Norman dressing as the mother. I think they referred to him as a transvestite. Yeah. And he said, no, yeah. not in this case, it's not. I think he was actually like a psychiatrist or something like that. Cause he had like this really long monologue. He, yeah, he did. Yeah. I think he was saying something like in this case, it's not, he's not a transvestite. He's actually assuming the personality of somebody completely different. Like it's not him anymore. Right. And these two personalities have been competing, which what we know now as being like dissociative identity disorder. Yep. So he had DID essentially. Um, but I think back then they probably called it like some sort of schizophrenia because he was hearing voices or like a dialogue in his head. Yeah. And then um, I think eventually he, they asked about giving Norman a, a blanket. One of the officers takes in a blanket, which I thought was kind of cool. You can hear the voice of what you believe to be Mrs. Bates. And then you find it's just Norman by himself talking in the voice the film ends with uh you know the camera zooming in on norman's face is his mother's voice which you assume is just him the other personality talking oh yeah she's talking about never hurting a fly because yeah. there was then, a fly on his hand yeah and then he just slowly starts to smirk yeah that's a and creepy scene it is and then we end with again with a, wa- a car being pulled out of <laughs> the water like in uh carnival of souls yeah <laughs> This reminded me a lot of Carnival of Souls, especially when she's driving on the roadway and she's like having those paranoid uh, thoughts and dialogues in her head. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Like, man, there's similarities here. She's going to look over and there's going to be some guy with the white painted face and black eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, yeah, that was the end. So what do you guys think of the movie? <laughs> hmm. I do have some thoughts. So I kind of have problems with this movie being a horror film. I do like it as a mystery thriller, but I do have issues calling it a horror film. This is an extremely low budget film, even for, you know, that day's standards. Uh, The scene where the detective, the private detective is falling down the stairs. I thought that scene was really hokey and (laughs) not sure why they decided to do that. I don't, it's cool looking, but I don't find it very effective. But that's kind of Hitchcock's style of using a projector behind as like the background. There were some other things about this movie that I wish was a little bit different. So with the whole idea of Norman Bates assuming the identity of his dead mother, I really, really would have liked to see and hear an actor do the voice because I think that would be more unsettling. It, they obviously used like a woman's voice, an older woman's voice to play the voice of the mom. And I don't yeah. think that was very effective to really 
believe it. If they even like did, let's say like a Hitchcock-esque scene where you see Norman's mouth, like let's say it's casting like a silhouette shadow of Norman Bates in the jail cell and his mouth is moving, but it's his mother's voice, right? But in this entire movie, we hear the mother's voice and we see Norman, but his lips are not moving. So for me, it's like, it doesn't even feel like the mother's voice is actually coming through. It's just all in his head. And I think it would have been more effective to have that end scene where you actually see his mouth moving and the mother's voice coming out. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of like in that movie Split. You know, I know that one has a lot of the same kind of premise, but you actually see the main actor doing the voices between the characters and assuming the persona. So I think um, like there, it could have been a little bit better without any uh, increase in budget whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but to its credit, to its credit, I still think this is a really good film because there are some scenes that stand out to me that are very well done. So back then, I don't think they could have shown the knife actually stabbing somebody. So that's why you never actually see the knife go in to um, her body. It just kind of you see the cuts um, of the um, knife, you know, uh, stabbing and then you you kind of see it missing her body entirely which i thought i don't know why they included that scene in there where you see the knife going away from her body when they go to stab her but the scene where her blood is going down the drain and then the drain turns into a shot of her eye and then the camera pans out and goes into the bedroom where the money is i thought that scene was really really well done that scene entirely is what like kind of makes this movie great in my opinion I just wish there was more of that in this film and not just that one scene. And that's it. Okay. I'll go next. I will say I do like this movie. I consider it not so much horror. I agree with that. It's more of a thriller, mystery, suspense, you know, all those good words has a lot of tension in it. When you first, if this is the first time you watch the movie, the opening scenes may kind of throw you off But a couple, you know, hanging out in a motel, just talking about their future or whatnot. But it does lay a groundwork to, as to why she went to the hotel. So every part of this movie kind of interacts with another part of this movie, even though some ends aren't tied up for us. That's okay. I do like the cinematography of this movie. A lot of stuff Ariel said. I do like the scene with stairs. I think it's cool. That's just me. Yeah, tell me why you like that scene, because I, I, I need you to sell me on that scene. It's so out of place from the rest of the film. <laughs> I think because there's been so many movies that recreated it, a similar scene like that, you know, even some comedies have done it. it, it I don't know. It's just, I just have a fondness for it because it, it reminds me of other movies as well. And it's like, oh, here it is from the beginning. And I've seen it for the next 30 years, whatever, mm. 40 years. Yeah, I, years, 60 years. I can see it. I can see it more of a comedic scene. But this movie seems very serious to me for some yeah, reason. It does. And so that's why it kind of seemed out of place. Like, I don't know if it was trying to be serious or humorous because essentially, like, if you haven't seen this movie, he falls back onto a long flight of stairs, like the in the Bates home. And it's almost like it cuts to him falling and there's like a projector and the perspective of him falling is kind of off. It's like uncanny. You know, like your brain is saying uh, that that doesn't look right. But then it continues. It cuts again and continues with him continuing falling down the stairs. So um, I think he did that a lot in the movie The Birds or Birds, uh, where he used a projector 
of birds flying around in the background. And you can kind of tell it's a projector, but because uh, the scaling is off. So it just kind of like even I was watching this with my husband. He he laughed out loud, too. He went, ha. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I can see if other you know, films have gotten inspiration from it. I can see it's like more of a nostalgic thing. But yeah. for me, I just was trying to figure out how that worked or how that got pitched and approved. <laughs> I think it's it's just one of those scenes where people just recreate it because it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it could be, it, yeah, it could be comedic. It, it's kind of like the scene in Jaws where they do the zoom. They're zooming in and pulling back at the same time. So the subject stays where they are, but the background changes around them. You know what I mean? That effect. Yeah. Yeah. But well, anyways, there's a lot of, you know, for the time. And if you haven't watched the movie, there is some twists and turns in this movie that you probably already know because you've seen a ton of movies. But back in its time, this was probably something new. It was innovative. It had a lot of depth in, you know, figuring out is there two of them or is he split personality, you know, throughout the movie or dissociative disorder or schizophrenic. You know, kind of keeps you guessing until she finds grandma on the fruit, fruit cellar. Saying all that, I will give this movie, I will say you should watch it to get a good foundation on horror movies or maybe psychological thrillers. I will give this movie eight, falling down the stairs out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to rate mine, uh, my review, so I'll just put it in real quick. Okay. I have... Uh, so even though I, I don't necessarily like this film as a Hitchcock film, I like some of his other films more. Um, I give this a six out of 10 uh, taxidermy birds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think you guys actually pretty summed it up pretty nicely. I think the <clears throat> a lot of people do consider it a masterpiece, Hitchcock's masterpiece. He did point out some of the flaws that are in the movie, but I think for, uh, you know, it's time, it was like 1960 and, to them, I think it would have been considered a shocking film. And I think there was a lot of subjects, like in the beginning, you have someone having an, the affair. I think there was an issue with um, an unmarried couple in a bed, I think, at that time, wasn't allowed in movies. Yeah, he was really pushing the envelope with this movie, and he wanted more in it, and he had to pull back because of the studios. Yeah. Yes. Some some of the scenes, yeah, you could tell they were he was pushing the limits. I think even the shower scene, which is considered, you know, like, like the top of horror scenes, like most memorable. The f I think they kept saying that you can see like her breast or something, the outline. There was an issue that I think they might have cut out certain parts, but it, it was definitely, I think, an inspiration for a lot of filmmakers like, uh, you know, like John Carpenter. He refers to uh, Alfred Hitchcock's direction and film and directing style. And, you know, he's always used the, used the word like more is or less is more. And uh, I think that that's really you could see it in the film especially with like the killing scenes the way they were done but um yeah it's, i think it's worth watching especially if you like horror films it's it's a foundation i think you have to have in knowing at least some parts of the films because there's you could see it in so many other movies uh so for that i would give it a uh, 9.2 mothers <laughs> mothers yeah. you know i think if if he actually like wrote the plot like the screenplay um not the screenplay, but if he if he wrote this, like this was his own idea, and I'm talking about Hitchcock, I think I would give it more credit. But this movie is literally like exactly how the book is written. Mm -hmm. So, and there was a sequel to the um, to the original book, I think. So I, I do have like kind of 
more respect for directors who can also write a really good story that's original. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was looking up, I haven't read the book, but I was looking up the synopsis and it seems to be very identical. The only thing that he changed in the movie is he made uh, Norman Bates attractive, whereas in the book he's unattractive. So it's a little bit more obvious that the uh, the the main uh, male, uh, I guess, character in in the book is more nefarious right off the bat, just based on how he looks. But in the movie, he chose to make him attractive because he wanted it to be something that you wouldn't expect. Right? This was kind of like right before that era of like in the 70s, where people did not expect serial killers to be attractive. And we saw that, you know, later on. Um, but this kind of seemed to be the start of that premise. And uh, I don't know if you guys knew this. I, I was just doing some research on the movie itself and the book. The book was actually inspired by Ed Gein's crimes. And I, I say inspired, but for some reason, I find this very strange and coincidental. But the the author of the book psycho was writing this story and did not know about ed gein when he was writing it and i think ed gein was caught and convicted two years prior to this book being released and he had no idea uh that ed gein was going to parallel norman bates so closely like the the psychosis of it you know the psychopathy of the mother dynamic without him even knowing who this guy was. And apparently he lived fairly close to uh, the murders from Ed Gein. Really? That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, do you guys know about Ed Gein? I mean, I did research, so it's kind of fresh in my memory, but I know that a lot of people, you know, who may not be into true crime may not know right off the bat who that is, but do you guys know a little bit about him? Uh, I knew he, he was like a hermit, right? And he, I know he made like stuff out of women's, Skin, body parts, skins, like lamps yeah. and stuff, right? I know they always say like yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a inspiration for, or it right. inspired the movie. Yeah, I mean the similarities between Psycho is even more than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because Ed Gein had a very unusual relationship with his mother, where it was like very um, dependent. He was very dependent on his mother. And she was very abusive to him, but he was enamored with her. And um, when she passed away, he kind of went a little crackers and started killing women and was using their skin to make a skin suit uh, to dress up as his mother in this skin suit and assume her identity, like her persona, essentially. And so the fact that Norman Bates was sort of assumed the personality of his mother and committing these crimes. Like it's so parallel. It's crazy. Hmm. I find it odd. He didn't know, but he lives so close. That's weird. Interesting. Yeah. Because some (laughs) people are saying, Oh, he was inspired by Ed Gein's crimes, but then somebody asked him about it. And he's like, no, I started writing this story before Ed Gein was caught, like before anyone knew who he was. And I think maybe because Ed Gein was caught prior to this book coming out, he probably added some stuff in there after the fact. But Norman Bates' character is so developed that mm-hmm. I don't think that there was much that he added from Ed Gein's crimes that wouldn't have already been in the process or in the making already. Because it, it takes a while to write a book, you know? I mean, I know Stephen King whips him out, like, left and right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe this author... Uh, <laughs> you know, found out about the crimes and, you know, went from there. But I don't, 
I don't quite know if they even knew um, that much about Ed Gein at the time when he was caught. Like, I don't know if they knew all this stuff about his mom and I don't know how much he confessed right off the bat or if that stuff came later. Makes you wonder, like, how did you think that up then if you... Yeah, that's what I'm like. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a chicken and the egg situation. Like, which came first, or were they happening at the same time in parallel? And like, then the question is, how does that happen? Like, how do two people in a very similar location? I don't know what town they're living in, but I would check the water (laughs) to make sure there isn't any heavy metals in there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because apparently, whatever they're drinking causes a lot of weird stuff (laughs) in, in thoughts and actions. So. Um, I do think I, I do want to read the book now. Um, but you know, I kind of already know what happens in the book cause it's very much like the movie. So. Yeah. I'm going to look that up more, go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not a very deep rabbit hole. It's, it's, um, but I mean, lo- once you start doing research on Edgy and you start to see the parallels, like if you keep psycho in mind when you're researching, you'll start to see it. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> Finch poke. All right. Well, that was the 1960 film Psycho, presented by Azrael. Thank you. That ends our month of 60s movies. And next month, we are going to do horror movies about towns. And our first film is going to be Silent Hill. Yay. Does anybody know when that came out? Uh, Right off the bat, 2007. I don't know. I'm going to say 99. (laughs) I'm 99. Really? Well, it was a game first, wasn't it? Well, no. It was on PlayStation. Uh, well, were you asking about the film or the game? Well, uh, the, the film. We're gonna the we're gonna review the video game Silent Hill. Yeah. <laughs> so if you guys through. can just beat it by next week, so yeah. we can go ahead and review it. We'll um, the film came out channel. in two thousand six. Oh, okay. That's a good. Yeah. Guess. <laughs> I know that it came out when I was, I'm dating myself now. I know it came out when I was in high school. So I knew it was before 2009 <laughs> and oh, okay. between the 2005 to 2009. <laughs> oh my God. You guys make me feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I didn't want to date myself. Cause I didn't want anyone else to compare my age to theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old man. That's okay. I like being old. You know what? It gives us a nice range of different generational um, representation, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Hope to see you guys in, on the next episode when we do Silent Hill. And Ariel makes me feel more old probably next week. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are hanging out with us. We are Stories to Dismember. You can reach us at stories to dismember at gmail.com. You can find us on TikTok. And we got a new TikTok video that Ariel did. And it's like getting a lot of views and likes. Everybody likes that. It's a good video, Ariel. Thank you for doing that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Nice You're job. Welcome. We're on Instagram. I'm sure that'll get updated soon. Facebook, just search that Stories to Dismember. You can Google Stories to Dismember and we'll pop up all over the place. You can also leave us a voicemail or text message at 817-405-4196. We'd love to hear from you. And all right, that's it for now. I guess we'll see you guys next time. I was going to come up with something witty, but I'm just going to say we all go mad a little a little mad sometimes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> or or I was going to go All right, later guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Stories to Dismember podcast. Please be sure to tell your friends, subscribe and leave a rating. 
You can contact us at storiestodismember at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on TikTok at Stories to Dismember. The music for Stories to Dismember is provided by Wen Feather. Can't wait to hang out with you next time. Bye-bye.